Uh, you might have seen that on Tuesday, the 28th, um, one of our own sheriff's deputies, uh, Richard Lopez, goes by Rick Arlo, his life was taken in the line of duty. Uh, and so I know that this has been felt throughout the community and even within our own church of a few people who worked with him and had a, a close relationship with him. He worked for YCSO for 14 years. We, as God's people, um, are called to be salt and light. And so as that's happened in, in our community, again, it's felt. We want to make you aware. Uh, tonight at 8 p.m. downtown at the square, there's a candlelight vigil happening. The funeral is going to be Wednesday afternoon at Finley Toyota Center at 1 p.m. If you want to show financial support, I saw that the county set up a fund. If you want details on that, see myself um, or Beth, Anthony, we can get you the details of where that's at. And then again, as a church, we want to just simply be present, aware, and praying. Few people's lives have gotten easier over the last two years, right? And, and one of the vocations that it's become increasingly difficult is with law enforcement. Uh, we addressed this two years ago after the George Floyd incident that we're called to be a both and people in an either or world. And as God's people, we are called to show support, love, and care for the law enforcement community. And so Yavapai County is a little bit unique in that. But again, um, as I have a few friends that are within law enforcement, their job has not gotten easier. And so this morning, after I read the text, um, I want to pray for uh, Yavapai County Sheriff's Office and the, the broader law enforcement community. Um, and, and that we would just simply be aware of the pressure that they're under. Though, again, aware, though many of us have no idea what that's actually like to, to suit up and put your life in harm's way day after day after day. Um, and then knowingly, as we interact with, see law enforcement throughout our community, show them our love and our support, whether that's providing a meal, um, just a knowing nod, a thank you, a wave to show Jesus's love through our actions. So. I'm going to read Jonah uh, chapter 1, 1 through 3, and then Nahum 1 through the first part of verse 6, and then we'll pray and see what God has for us. Jonah says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And then Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Is that right, Anthony? All right, sweet. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Let's pray. So, Father, we come before you um, with a wide range and mix 
of emotions. On one hand, here we are in this land where we find ourselves in a holiday weekend enjoying friends and family and, and all of that. And, and on the other, our community is grieving with the loss of a beloved um, sheriff and grieving with his family, with his wife, his daughters, his grandkids. And so we pray um, first for Kim Lopez as she grieves the loss of her husband and the father of her kids, that you would be present, you would bring uh, comfort through your people, and you would withhold her in this particular storm that she's enduring. We pray that you'd protect his kids and grandkids Lord, in that we, we simply take hold of the promise that you're near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed in spirit, that you know you are just and you will work all things out in your time. And so I pray that you would give our hearts that perspective, that we would not look away or turn a blind eye to the real evil that is in our world, but we would trust you as God, as judge, as king, and that you've appointed people to keep peace and who do not uh, wield the sword lightly. And so we pray that you would protect our law enforcement, those men and women that uh, help keep us safe and, and maintain order in a, in a society that is, that is bent and broken. And it's times like these, Lord, that we pray, uh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Make all things new. Judge the living and the dead. And heal your world. And as we look to your word now, would you give us uh, that perspective on who you are and how you have worked in history and through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Anthony Garcia. John, you, you make a pretty good hype man. <laughs> so now throw your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care. Um, I haven't got one chuckle. That's good. Okay. Uh, so our text today brings us back to our very broad overview of the Bible and uh, an examination of the minor prophets. Uh, the two covenant watchdogs that we will be tackling today uh, are uh, Jonah and Nahum. And forbearings, uh, here's my title, give you some, some rails for it, maybe. Hopefully I don't go off those rails. But uh, uh, poet, punk, and prophet. Okay, poet, punk, and prophet. I guess you, you, you can guess who the punk is, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, John. Oh. oh, you're right. I got a heckler right in the second row now. Oh, we're in trouble. Oh, so this next line is for you, John. If they were a part of a boy band, um, Jonah would be the bad boy, and Nahum would be considered the creative. Uh, John, if you weren't here last week, he wanted to take the comparison to the Avengers. Well, I'm reclaiming it, and I'm bringing it back to uh, a boy band, okay? Um, if Jonah and Nahum were part of a boy band, Jonah would be the bad boy. Nahum would be considered the creative. Uh, Jonah is arguably the most well-known of the minor prophets. 
If you've ever been to church at any age, odds are you've probably heard the tale of the punk prophet who ended up in the belly of a fish. Nahum, on the other hand, is a little more obscure. Odds are you have never at any age heard a sermon uh, on or from the one whom Patterson calls the poet laureate among the minor prophets. And you're saying, and perhaps some of you are saying, well, I have heard a sermon on Nahum. Well, well, congratulations, and good for you. You get a, you get a gold star today. We're covering uh, Jonah and Nahum because, one, uh, they are actually seated in the Septuagint next to each other. The Septuagint is, uh, is uh, the Greek um, version of the Old Testament, and I don't know if you care about that, but... You, something for Bible trivia. Uh, But number two, and probably most important for our study today, is that uh, both Jonah and Nahum share a common subject matter, and that's why they're combined. Um, You may have noticed in our reading this morning that they both address the city of Nineveh. Now, to know anything of the city of Nineveh means you have to know something about the Assyrian Empire, and so this morning, um, if you're a historian like uh, like Josh, Josh will this is his this is right in your wheel wheelhouse, Josh. Uh, a little little history lesson on the Assyrian Empire, but but hang with me and pay attention because it's very relevant and helpful to our understanding and inter- interpretation of the text. Okay, so the Assyrian Empire, as you uh, may or may not know made Nineveh its capital city for a time. And if you know anything about the Assyrian Empire, they dominated the Middle East from about 900 to 612 BC. They were known for being a terrifying army. Uh, They were cruel and ruthless. And uh, the reason they were so cruel and uh, ruthless was because they were also really uh, organized. Their war machine... Uh, actually employed iron, which could be mass-produced, and it was far superior to bronze, meaning that during this period of time, especially in the Neo-Assyrian Empire's time, they they were essentially unstoppable on the planet. As you might imagine, this war machine chewed up everything in its path, and this included God's people, the Israelites. According to historians, um, under the rule of King Sennacherib, uh, Assyria began an assault on Israel and Judah, which would ultimately uh, bring 46 fortified cities to their knees. Um, You can read a little bit about this piece of history in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter uh, 18 and 19, where Hezekiah deals with uh, Sennacherib. But anyway, 46 fortified cities fell at the hands of Sennacherib. The climax of this conquest, depending on who you ask, this is another nerd thing, but depending on who you ask, uh, it ended in Lachish or it ended in Jerusalem, depending on who you ask. Uh, Hezekiah in the Bible says it ended at Lachish, um, 
Sennacherib, he actually had a, a stone commission to say that it, he was successful all the way through to Jerusalem. But anyway, that's nerd history for you. Sennacherib was so satisfied with his victory at Lahish, he actually commissioned 12-meter-long 12, 12 reliefs to be carved out to commemorate this occasion. So what I mean by that is he, he took these giant slabs of, of rock and carved in all the pictures of what that siege and assault looked like. And the reason I bring that up to you is because, one, he was very proud of it, so proud that he took these giant slabs of, of stone and he, and he placed them in his palace without rival. That's, that's what they called it. The palace without rival in Nineveh. And in fact, if you ever, ever want to see these reliefs, they're uh, housed now at the British Museum in London. And I bring this factoid up to you this morning because they depict these brutal methods that the Assyrians uh, employed to um, strike fear into their enemies. Now, I'm sorry if this is a little graphic, and maybe sorry, not sorry, because I'm telling you anyway, but uh, the scenes on these slabs depict humans being skewered and skinned alive for public display. Uh, and this is just a peak of the terrible atrocities the people of Assyria were proficient in. What I'm trying to prove to you before we get into the text this morning is that Assyria was awful. They were horrible. They, 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 they were the, the worst kind of people that you could imagine. Well, how, how bad? How bad? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, a British historian... Uh, Paul Krivizek, uh, he says this. He says, Assyria must surely have among the worst press notices of any state in history. Babylon may be a byname for corruption, decadence, and sin, but the Assyrians and their famous rulers with terrifying names like Shalamaneser, uh, Tiglath-Pilsir, uh, Sennacherib, Isar Haddon and Ashurbanipal uh, rate in the popular imagination just below Adolf Hitler and Genghis Khan for cruelty, violence, and sheer murderous savagery. Are you guys getting a picture of who these people are? If not, I have one more quote from another uh, uh, historian. Military expert uh, Simon Anglim, he further establishes Assyrian reputation writing these words. With historian, while historians tend to shy away from analogies, it is tempting to see the Assyrian Empire, which dominated the Middle East from 900 to 612 BC, as a historical forebear of Nazi Germany, an aggressive, murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. As with the German army of World War II, the Assyrian army was the most technologically and doctrinally advanced of its day and was a model for other generations afterwards. Do you guys get the picture? They were really bad, and they were really proficient uh, with their badness. And it is to this place, and it is to these people, that God calls both 
Jonah and Nahum to deliver a prophetic utterance. That's the context of the two books we're looking at. Uh, so when you read Nineveh, you have to think of Assyria. And when you think of Assyria, you have to think of someone and some people who are um, terrible, to say the least. Jonah is first called to preach to this place. And then nearly a century later, uh, Nahum is called to uh, as well. Now, I'm going to try and keep this as simple and concise as possible. So I'll attempt to offer up to you three bits of wisdom we can extract from uh, the stories in the text today. And it's this, and hopefully this is encouraging and helpful to each one of us in this room. And it's this, number one, we have to remember that evil does not escape the gaze of God. God sees it all, and he does not lose sight of any bit of it. Both Jonah and Nahum teach us that God sees all in his perfect sovereignty, and in fact, it tells us that he will address it all as well. Both prophets in chapter 1, um, and we read that in the reading from, from John this morning, they're, they're both called and commissioned by God to address the atrocities done by the Assyrian people. And hopefully, this offers hope to all of you who also witness atrocities being done in the world today. See, God is seeing the suffering in the world, and, and, he, and he's very aware of who our oppressors are, who, the, who, who, who are bringing... Um, hellfire to the world. Does God see it? Is the big question. And Jonah and Nahum tell us, yes. God sees all the evil in the world and has a solution for it. Nothing escapes his gaze. No one who does evil is ever off the hook. And to those who look on, like the psalmist once did and says, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they still exist and, and, and exact pain on the people of the world? To those who ask that question, God in his holiness is telling us through Jonah and Nahum that God will satisfy himself in his holiness, in his time, and in his way. And, and this is a big and. Uh, God in his good justice will address it in a way that satisfies himself. God always does it in such a way that satisfies himself. And this is where the tension of Jonah and Nahum lies, whether we know it or not. You see, Nahum deals with the uh, retributive side of uh, Nineveh's story, while Jonah deals with the restorative side of God's goodness. And if you know anything about Jonah... Uh, Jonah wasn't really feeling the forgiving side of God when he was first called to go to Nineveh. Why? Well, I hope we established it. Because they were awful people. Which leads us to observation number two. 
Observation number two is just because we have right theology, it does not mean we will have the right practice when it comes to our right theology. And let me explain. You see, Nahum, in his book, which comes far later, far after the time of Jonah, Nahum's pitch seems to be straight down the pipe. It seems to be something we can see coming, it makes sense, and we should be able to swing all the way through it. But it makes sense. You see, in, in poetic prose, um, people are enamored, uh, well, Bible nerds are enamored with how beautiful Nahum is written. Uh, you may find it um, that way as well. But in, prophetic, in poetic prose, he provides three short chapters declaring and defining God's hand in the demise of the Assyrian Empire. If you read Nahum, uh, Nahum is simply writing a, a beautiful book about the destruction of the people of Assyria. Like I said, it's a straight pitch. Basically, what's being said there is time is up. And in terms of the book's contents, there, is, there appears to be no human conflict on Nahum's part. And of course, why would, why would there be? The wicked have already had mercy extended to them, and that's what Jonah tells us, that mercy's been extended to them in their direction, and they have refused it. And so, therefore, God, rightfully so, uh, addresses judgment upon them. His wrath will be uh, quenched on their wickedness. These evil people will finally be done away with. That makes a lot of sense to us. Right? I think so. Where, where Nahum gets his practice really right is his ability to not make the ruination of Assyria a personal thing. Uh, especially when it could be so easy. In other words, Nahum could put a lot of personal notes in his book on being very derisive towards the Assyrian army as they are being destroyed. But he doesn't make it personally, uh, he doesn't make it personal at all. In fact, if you read it poetically, it could almost sound clinical the way he describes the destruction of this place. In fact, as Elizabeth Ochtenmeyer writes, she says, for Nahum, Nineveh will be judged not because it is Judah's enemy, but because it's God's enemy. And I like the way she puts it. She makes a very clear distinction between who's really responsible for the destruction of these people. And therefore, for Nahum, it's not personal at all. He's not involved in it. In, in other words, there's no petty nastiness in his part being declared in that book. And there's so much wisdom there for each and every one of us. Something that I've learned a long time ago that has helped me in so many facets of life is to not personalize what is not personal. Nahum could be nasty, but he's not. And I think we should just think about that for a second. Now, Jonah, on the other hand, Jonah's quite a curveball. Or, or should I say, the way Jonah handles what God is doing among the Ninevites is quite a curveball. His account 
as opposed to Nahum's, is full of personal human conflict. You see, Jonah has taken the sin of Nineveh very personal. He's deeply hurt. He's deeply angry, angry and enraged. And therefore, for a season, remember that word of the Lord that came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, to go to Nineveh and pe- preach? For a season, he refuses that commission. He says, oh, that's great, God, but um, I'm going to go the entire different direction. And this is another big and. Not because he misunderstands God, but because he completely understands God. See, Jonah is totally informed. He has right theology. However, his practice is a little wonky. We'll just say it that way. I'll fast forward you to chapter 3 of Jonah. He took the long way of getting there, of course, but he did eventually arrive in Nineveh. Just in case we're wondering, it's so much more than about a, a big fish. All right? He takes a long way in getting there, but he eventually does arrive in Nineveh. And, uh, and he preaches perhaps what is the, the, one of the shortest sermons to ever pro- be proclaimed on the pages of Scripture. He says the, these words. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He walks about a day's journey, and then he just says about, uh, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In what is perhaps every preacher's dream scenario, um, the Ninevites believed God and they called for a fast. Short, really, you know, poorly executed sermon, and yet uh, everybody responds. No, and this is no joke. Like, read the book. Uh, from the king, Snacrib, all the way from the king to the cows, uh, they all put on sackcloth. <laughs> can, can you, like, get this picture of the animals in sackcloth and uh, Assyrians are saying, come on guys, repent, like, join us because we're in deep doo-doo right now. Um, they're all in sackcloth and they're all holding out hope that God will um, not, not destroy them in his fierce anger for all the things that they have done, all the misdeeds, all the atrocities, all the horror that they have poured out onto the world, they're sitting in sackcloth and ashes hoping God will relent. And you know what happens? He does. He does relent. But here's the thing. What pleased God displeased Jonah. Are you familiar with this story? It's a trippy story. And I I love it because, man, it tells me so much about myself. Um, I'll just pick up in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll read through a little portion of of, uh, chapter 4. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. (laughs) How many of you find this fascinating? I find this, every time I read it, I find it fascinating. Because Jonah knew who God is, and he didn't want his enemies to experience the restorative side of the justice of God. He, he was angry. He knew who God is and what he, what he could be for the, for the Assyrians, and he didn't want that for them. Why? Because he wasn't looking for restoration. He was looking for retribution. Perhaps he believed that the Ninevites had sinned against God, but Jonah is clear that this is also a very personal matter to him. He's terribly angry at them. And Jonah wanted vengeance. He wanted to deliver some of the suffering that his people experienced in that 46-city assault from the Assyrians. He wanted them to feel some of that. He wanted them to experience some of that. He wanted a taste of it himself. And he says it right there on the pages of Scripture. That's why the prophet is so fascinating, because it's not speculative I'm not speculating on what's going on in Jonah's mind and heart here. It's on the pages. He's saying, God, I went the other way because I know you are good. I know that you you are kind to a repentant people. And so I jumped on a a ship sailing the other way because I wanted to see the Assyrians burn. You see, Jonah didn't want what God wanted. And that should sober each one of us up. (laughs) I know it it does me. I have told you this many times, but since there's some new people at church, I'll tell you this, uh, this something I tell everybody. If I have to suffer through studying and and the Spirit is working in my heart, um, and I have to go through that turmoil and angst, you have to join me in it on Sunday. Jonah didn't want what God wanted, and that should sober each one of us up. You see, he, he had the right theology, but he just had wrong practice. I mean, it's funny. I, I mean, I love this story because uh, it says he goes, he jumps in a ship to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord, from an omnipresent God, He tries to get away from this God. He knows very well it's an impossible task. How many of us, like Jonah, make concessions? Breaking obedience to God, his covenant, to biblical truth, just because in the heat of the moment, it doesn't feel right to follow God. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, 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 me too. Sometimes we personalize things that shouldn't be personal. 
And and often, we own something that only belongs to God. That is what Jonah is telling us. I have a song for you, which I've also shared here before, but it kind of summarizes the the conflict um, with our understanding of a holy God calling us into his perfect will. It's from Toby Nwigwe. He's a He's a rapper that I really like, and he has a song called Try Jesus. Um, it goes like this. I won't sing it like Toby. Uh, I, don't have enough ba- I don't have enough bass in my voice anyway. Try Jesus. Yeah, okay, maybe. Um, try Jesus. No, okay. Okay, yeah, still no? Okay, okay. He says, try Jesus, not me, because I throw hands. Again, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start over, just so you understand what he's saying. He says, try Jesus, not me, because I throw hands. He says, try Jesus. Please don't try me, because I fight. He says, I know what he said about getting slapped, but if you touch me or mine, we're going to have to scrap. <laughs> so try Jesus, not me, because I throw hands. It summarizes perfectly the sentiment of all of us when we are stung personally and want vengeance immediately. But how many of you are you familiar with the word in Deuteronomy and in Romans? Deuteronomy 32, Romans 12. What, is, what does God say there? He says, vengeance is mine. And isn't that part of the human experience, is trying to take vengeance to ourselves and execute it in a way that would please us? God makes it very clear to the people of the Old Testament and the New, vengeance is his. It belongs to to him. Now, I'm not getting into the nuances of justice being done on the world through human hands, okay? The point I am trying to make today is that we have great tension when it comes to obeying the will and the way of God in most of our life. I mean, yes, we could create very complicated theoretical circumstances that cause us to really peel back the layers and say, how do we address that? I'm not talking about that, all right? I'm talking about, and I'll use me and my wife as an example, when, when I have an opportunity not to be a jerk. I can, I can choose the way of Jesus, not be a jerk, or I can just take that own that and, 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 uh, and just and be a turkey, right? You see, following the way of Christ in this world isn't easy. And we complicate it by disagreeing like Jonah did when he and we happen to disagree with the way God is working in the world. How many of you think that God does not see. How many of you are like the psalm, the writer of the psalm says, Lord, why are these wicked people prospering? Or you read headlines in 
the news and you say, God, where are you? Jonah and Nahum are telling us that he's right there. That he sees it all, but he's addressing it in a way in which it will satisfy him. Do you understand? Do we understand that God does not run his ideas and thoughts and ways by each one of us? (laughs) All I'm doing on Sunday is teaching you what the Bible says. I have no idea what God is doing today and tomorrow. But I know he's good because of what the word says. I think this subject would be such a good topic for group study because then you can get into all the layers and all the complexities of it. So that would be my offering to any gospel community leader today. That would be a great uh, subject for conversation. But what Jonah is telling us is that there is real tension when we look at the retributive and restorative side of God's justice. Sometimes we want retribution when God is saying, no, no, I'm actually offering restoration here. That's why Jonah is such a fascinating study. But here's the thing that both books tell us is that number three, God will put an end to wickedness and most of the time we we will not be involved. Nahum couldn't be any clearer on this matter. Like I said, three poetic chapters on the punishment of this place. And it is not Nahum who executes this justice. No, it's the Babylonians, another pagan empire that will come in and fill the void and create another trouble in the world. I do not understand how God works and operates in this world. If you read history, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It didn't make a lot of sense then. Only when we read it in in light of scripture and history does it make some sense now. So moving on into the future, how are we going to make sense of that other than trusting in the Lord? So Nahum, he doesn't know. He's not there. And then, of course, Jonah, at the end of his book, and that's another fascinating thing about Jonah. There's no, there's no resolution there. At the end of the book, he's seething, and he's, he's, he's saying, he's actually having this conversation with God. God says to him, does it, is it, does it do well for you to be angry? Are you guys familiar with that question? Is it, is it do well for you to be angry? And, and Jonah answers, just like many of us who are so angry and can't understand the heart of God, he says, yes, it, it does me right to be angry. Yeah, he says, he says and then, and then you, you remember a little bit later, he grows a little plant over Jonah. <laughs> I, the story's hilarious. He grows a tr- plant over him because he's, I think he's hoping they'll renege on their repentance because he's out in the out, outskirts of the city. He's hoping they'll renege on their repentance. And, so, and then God grows this little, little plant to give him some shade. But then he's stewing, and he's mad, and he's angry, and he's, he hates the Assyrians. And then, and then God causes the, the plant that he grew for him to wither and die. And then he asks him again, the follow-up question, does it do you, does it serve you? Does it serve you well to be angry? And Jonah says, and I, like, I just love it because he is speaking, he's speaking 
He's reading my mail. I think John says that a lot. He's reading my mail. He's probably reading all of our mail. He says, he says God, yes, it serves me right to be angry. Angry enough to die. <laughs> and it's, that's, that's the story. And that's how it ends. An angry prophet. I mean, he is, he is fuming, angry at, at this whole situation. And then the story ends. Assyria would, would eventually have their comeuppance. They would inevitably get theirs. That's what Nahum tells us, right? But Jonah never lived to see this day. Why? Because that vengeance did not belong to him. It never belonged to him. And we need to hold both of those books in our hands and our hearts when we deal with uh, the world, which inevitably hurts us. I don't think there's any, a single person in here who hasn't been hurt in this life. Unjustly hurt in this life. Listen, God sees it. He's not winking at sin. He's not missing certain things. Like, you know, we parents, we, we, we don't see it all. You know, um, child number three gets away with a, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've that's what I've observed in my uh, my social my social studies of uh, of the wolf pack. Uh, <laughs> but John is not uh, he's not omnipresent. He can't see it all. But God does. God sees it all, and He has uh, an answer for it all. But it's sovereign, and it's all in His perfect time. Are we okay with that? He will address it. All of it. Are we okay with that? Long story short, we really don't know how God executes his retributive and restorative justice in the world. And this is my final big and. We'd be wise to leave that to God and simply walk in humble obedience to the things that are very obvious to us. According to the gospel, the, the obvious is our need before a holy God. We, the gospel tells us, just like the Assyrians, we deserve uh, retributive justice. And yet Jesus goes to a cross to absorb wrath and atone for our sin. His blood offers us restorative grace, and now we, like the Assyrians, and any people who have ever encountered the goodness of God have a choice of whether or not we will walk in such a way that demonstrates and reflects this good gift. You see, I need the gospel because without it, I, went, I want retribution for everyone else but myself. So, I'll leave you with five questions to continue thinking about. If I've really ticked you off, maybe these uh, five questions will um, just uh, incite a little more rage within you. <laughs> but don't, don't kill the messenger. <laughs> Number one, do I believe God sees and is sovereign over all? 
even the evil in this world. I have a quote from Tim Keller who will help you understand this perhaps even on a a deeper level. He says this, he says, worry is saying to God, you're going to get it wrong. And anger is saying to God, you have gotten it wrong. Do we believe that God sees and is sovereign over all? Number two, is my theology correct? Meaning, can we pass a, 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 a short quiz or perhaps a long test on the character and nature of God and what he says in the full scope and story of Scripture? Do we have correct theology? And is my practice of said theology correct as well? Matters. Number three. Do I want mercy even for my enemies? Take it up with Jesus. Because he tells us to pray for them. Number four. Can vengeance really belong to the Lord? Is it really something that is his and his alone? And maybe, here's a bonus question, because I didn't write this one down. Does it do us well to try and hold on to that anger? And number five, and perhaps the most difficult question of, of the day, Am I refusing to do something God has clearly called me to do? I don't know how many rebels are in the room today, but C.S. Lewis says that is who we are. We are rebels before a holy God who ultimately have to lay down arms. And that's constantly my question as I study, especially books like this. And I say, am I still trying to wield a weapon? Or will I let, what the story of Scripture is very clear, will I let my God fight for me? So, let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy over your over our life, and really, Jesus, for this uh, study of Scripture and really this overview, help us to understand the things that have been shared and spoken. And if there's deeper work and further questions that we might have in that investigating your, your character and how we respond to that uh, in the world in which we live, may we, may we go further with you. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to, to know and hear and understand your heart uh, in the world in which you've placed us. To be, um, to be wise um, and gentle, as Jesus has commanded us to be. Not one thing aggressively or the other thing aggressively, but some, some good balance there. Help us get there, Lord. Um, so, Lord, we, 
We love you and we thank you for the message of, of Jonah and Nahum and what they really tell us about ourselves. God, we do also, as we started this, this morning, we acknowledge that the world is broken and filled with so much evil, and it does um, incite indignation. God, please help us to know um, your heart in all of it. Help us to wait and trust and hope in you and respond to you in such a way that um, would truly bring glory and honor to you and reflect the goodness of the gospel that we have uh, understood and received. And so Jesus, we love you and we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.